0: seated. Every time that I teach uh, public speaking to students, I always make sure to clear the speeches that they're about to give before they give them, just in case. Uh, now I've had a little bit more than 1,200 students go through uh, public speaking in one way or another, and I have never once ever said no to the presentation that somebody asked to give except for one time where I came very close. It was early on. Uh, in my teaching days and the class was going through giving their statements about what they wanted their speeches to be about and uh, one student would say I want to the purpose of my speech is to to inform my audience about the Eiffel Tower and then the next one would be you know about Mothman or something and then we get to this one student and the student says the purpose of my speech is to inform my audience about how to treat your servants and the whole class was quiet and I said, what? And then he like, looked at me with concern, like maybe English was my second language or something. So he like, got really loud and started talking really slow. The purpose of my speech is to tell people how to treat their servants and now the class was kind of like realizing what was happening and you know some of them were looking really offended some were looking shocked some were snickering most of them had like like were wishing they were somewhere else and they had gone to their happy place and it was very strange and so i paused for a second i kind of thought and i was like i'm very interested in your topic let's talk about it after class and so after class, he comes in and basically his situation was he was um, Saudi royalty. And he had been raised in a palace. All of his friends were multi-multi-millionaires. All of his family members were multi-multi-millionaires. He had never known anything other than a life in which he was utterly surrounded by people who were at his beck and call. And uh, he everyone he knew was existing in the same reality. Inside of that palace, inside of that little bubble, he was capable of thinking about the world in a way that was utterly divorced from reality. I still had him give the speech, and it was very interesting. I'm sure he thought he was very forward-thinking with his thoughts on how you shouldn't beat your servants and so forth. But uh, he was occupying this very strange, to us anyway, strange little bubble. Inside of his palace, he could convince himself That the world was a way that it simply wasn't. We do the same sort of thing. We build fortresses, palaces, castles inside of ourselves to protect things. We protect, uh, we protect things by building walls around it, and these fortresses, if they show any kind of vulnerabilities, we try to augment them, we cover up those vulnerabilities with more fortifications, and if those fortifications we fort- uh, show vulnerabilities, we, show- we fortify them, and so on and so forth. Paul here uses that picture of building a castle, building fortifications around something to, uh, uh, to talk to us about what lies we tell ourselves in order to insulate us from reality. Our reading today is taken from 2 Corinthians. We'll start reading uh, in chapter 10 at verse 3. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not physical or fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ." The word arguments in this text is kind of used in an interesting way. Usually when we talk about arguments, we're talking about debates that we're having with other people. The arguments that it's talking about here are the ones that we make to ourselves. They're the justifications that we offer to ourselves to try to convince ourselves that something is a particular way. And oftentimes, it does have to do with exactly uh, what it's talking about, the high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, our own arrogance, the cross looms against our own sense of self-importance. And self-importance is something that we have clung hard to ever since the beginning. Self-importance was one of the drivers behind Adam and Eve's very first sin. They fell into unbelief. Because they wanted to be their own gods. Because they looked at themselves and saw inside of themselves what they wanted. They wanted to be the center of the universe. And we haven't lost that. But the message of why the cross is there can only be grabbed when we confront how deeply evil we are. And that's not fun to do. And so every instance that we have of that evil in our lives, we are drawn to the temptation of building a little fortress around it, hiding that thing from the world, establishing a series of lies by which we can pretend that reality is something different. For example, one of the walls, one of the big fortifications we'll build is to say that the sin that we've committed or the thing that's inside of our life is just something that's inside of us. It's not affecting anyone else. It's not hurting anybody else who's around us. And we'll cling to that lie even as evidence starts to pile on about how that clearly isn't true. Everything points against it. We've seen people destroy their own lives, and the lives of everyone that they care about because they couldn't control their lust or their greed or their obsession. Everyone in this room knows somebody who's, who that's happened to. My uncle, uh, his uh, alcoholism ended up costing him absolutely everything. And every step of the way through, he justified it by saying, I'm the only one drinking. I'm the one taking the drink, I'm the one pouring it down my throat, any effects that are happening are happening inside of me, it's nobody else's business, it's not hurting anybody else. And he said that as he lost his job, and he drank, and he said it's not hurting anybody else, and he said that as he lost his house, and he drank, and he said it's not hurting anybody else as he lost his wife, and he drank and he said it's not hurting anybody else as it cost him his children. And he kept drinking inside of this little castle until that castle of lies that he was using to pretend that this was only about him finally collapsed on him, and he he died in it. He drank himself to death in a delusional little castle, thinking that it was protecting him, while in fact it was robbing him of absolutely everything that he had. Now, we can take this story, and we can take the word drunkenness out, and we can replace it with literally any sin that you can think of, and the story will work exactly as well. Our laziness isn't just about us. It harms others. Our lust isn't just about us. It harms others. Our refusal to believe the absolute best about someone else isn't just about us, it harms others. How many times have you heard someone say, I'm not hurting anyone by what they're doing while they were actively hurting you? Inside the castle we claim, I'm not hurting anyone. But the truth of the matter is, what we're really saying is I'm the only one who matters. Anybody who is being hurt by this is a nobody. And therefore, I'm not actually hurting anyone. And then in comes the word of God, with God's own power behind it, a weapon to destroy those castles. Only it doesn't come to destroy the castle in order to kill the occupant. It comes to destroy that castle to save them. Jesus changes the way that we look at the world. In our text, it says that it brings every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I wanted the world to be strictly about me. I wanted the world to revolve around me. And I constructed fantasies in which that was the case. And Jesus tore that down By acting as though it were true. He acted as though I was the only one that mattered. God in heaven left. Became a human being for my sake. Lived a life under the worst possible uh, possible circumstances because he loved me in spite of what I was. The need for his sacrifice comes as kind of a stark shock about what the world that revolves around us would have looked like. It comes as a stark shock when we see what it is that our sins deserve. But it was a sacrifice that he paid willingly. He suffered and he died for my evil and he gave me the reward that his perfect goodness had earned. He gave me heaven for nothing. That attacks the defenses that we've built in our hearts. Forgiveness is not something that gets offered in order to just make me feel better about the things that I have done that are wrong. It's really not offered to make me feel better about the things that I'm still doing wrong right now it makes the castles that i was building to shield those things and to justify those things it makes those castles meaningless i don't need to protect the delusion that i matter i clearly matter god left heaven and died for my sake he loves me in spite of who i am we can confront who and what we are and the more directly we confront the reality of our situation here on earth as lost sinners, as creatures who are fully worthy of damnation, the more beautiful the message of the gospel is, the more joy we experience when we see Jesus' great acts of love for us and receive his forgiveness in our hearts and on our tongues and on our heads. That's where the power to change a life comes from. If we're building up protections around our own evil, that prevents us from changing. We would say, I have no reason to change. I'm not hurting anybody. Those walls keep us from keep anything from changing ever. But embracing forgiveness destroys that castle. It allows me to confront the reality that I am a miserable sinner that my my actions have caused pain and problems and I can confront that without fear. Christ has paid for those sins. And then, with joy over forgiveness, live on trying to do better, trying to heal the hurts that I have caused. You can use a physical weapon to change somebody's behavior for a little while, for a second. But a spiritual weapon of God can change a life forever, and from that life, it can change a thousand more. If you have a real desire in your heart to witness to people, it can sometimes be really challenging to figure out where to begin, right? Door knocking or what do you do? How do you start that? I would actually suggest to you that one of the very best places to begin if you're looking uh, to find an opportunity to witness and evangelize and share is to actually start with exactly this. Look at yourself. Rip some of those castles down and ask yourself, what are some of the things that I have done? What are some of the problems that my actions or lack of actions, that my thoughts or thoughtlessness, what are some of the problems that they have caused? And then seek to resolve some of those things in the joy of forgiveness. Find, use those as a, as a beginning point. And with the light of forgiveness, go fearlessly out and... In Christ's light, fix the, actions that your, uh, fix the problems that your actions have caused in the lives of others. With arrogance struck down and every thought captive to Christ, obedient to him, living our lives, then they will see our good works and not our evil ones and glorify our Father in heaven. Amen. Please rise. Lord God, we thank you that you have struck down in us all that is evil. We thank you that you have replaced the life that we, have, uh, that we have protected so hard with a perfect one lived by you. Continuously rip down the fortifications that we build around our evil and always reveal to us anew the light of your Son who saved us. In his name we pray. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you, amen.